this is Susan. And this is Katie. And this is Sometimes Gwen. And welcome to another episode of She Speaks Stories. And I have really, really, really been looking forward to this episode um, yes. for a long time. And let me tell you, my um, it's a unique conversation that we're going to have. I cannot wait for this discussion because mm-hmm. we're going to hear firsthand from someone who's walking this road and has walked this journey. And Gwen, even... Um, us a few weeks ago when we had dinner with our um, friends from Iraq right. who have, were refugees here and now they're American citizens. And um, Reem, their, the daughter of this family that we love so dearly, had um, Thanksgiving meal with us. And listening to her talk to my family about her journey um, of becoming an American citizen, I just, I couldn't stop hugging her all night mm-hmm. because it, I'm telling you, People that come to this country from other countries are some of the bravest people I've ever met in my entire life. It's totally and, starting over. Yes, yeah. it is. And, yeah. um, and it, what I love the most is, is that we're going to put a story behind what so often is just seen as a topic. Right, really, right. It's no more than a topic. It right. is people's lives that we're speaking right. about. Right. And I'm just so eager. So I'm going to introduce who our guest is, and then we're going to mm-hmm. jump right in because this is, I'm, I'm telling you, I have no shoes on my feet, and I'm sitting here clapping my feet together. Like, I'm just so excited. <laughs> I can't even stand it. Um, it feels like okay. a seal. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited. Um, okay, so today we get to sit down and talk with Karen Gonzalez, and she is a much sought after speaker and immigrant advocate. And Karen works as director of Human Resources for World Relief in Baltimore, Maryland. And today, we're going to get to chat with her about her book, The God Who Sees. And it is a powerful weaving of her immigration story with the stories in the Bible. Her book is an invitation to readers to discover the heart of the God obsessed with the immigrant. I could not love this more. Karen, (laughs) welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It's great to talk with you all. And Karen, I have to admit, I haven't read your book yet, which is horrible because I love to read. And after we chat, I'm going on Amazon to buy it. But Gwen (laughs) has read it and told us, oh, you're going to love this story. So I'm eager to just jump right in and ask you, this first question so I can get a glimpse of your story and it's just this can you describe the big picture story of your immigration journey to becoming a U.S. citizen? Sure so my immigration story begins in Guatemala which is where I was born and where I lived with my parents and my brother and sister um, until I was 10 years old And our life in Guatemala was really good. We had relatives who had migrated to the U.S., but my parents were just very happily settled in their life in Guatemala. And we had no plans or goals to migrate for any reason. But what changed that was that a civil war broke out in our country. And this was between the government and some socialist guerrillas who wanted reforms. There's so much uh, corruption in the government. So much land has been taken from the indigenous people. So this war uh, eventually grew, you know, it started out as a very small thing, but then the United States became involved because they had a a strong interest in not having Guatemala become a socialist country. Um, You know, it's so hard now for people who don't remember the Cold War to, to remember what it was like, a real fear of socialism spreading in the Western hemisphere as it did in, in Cuba. And so a lot of people are like, what? (laughs) But, (laughs) but it was a real fear at that time. And because Cuba had become communist, the United States had a real strong vested interest in not seeing that happen in any other country. And so uh, the U S government now it's very widely known funded the military and basically allowed them to do whatever they needed to do to keep the country from becoming communist. And this included a lot of repression, a lot of uh, terrorizing Guatemalan people who were opposed to the government of Guatemala in any way. So 
My father was a socialist and he worked for a humanitarian organization that did development work that was actually based here in the US. But he, you know, worked in Guatemala on different kinds of projects down there. And because of his involvement um, in the socialist political party, but also because of the kind of work that he did, it just became unsafe for him to stay in Guatemala mm -hmm. as well. The economy was completely destabilized. It wasn't even like you could say, I'm going to go into different kind of work. Uh, war is just never good yeah. for countries and their people. And so my dad left first and um, we had visited the U.S. We had tourist visas. So he came on a tourist visa and then my mom and my brother and sister and I followed about a year later. And we also came in on tourist visas and we came in with the intention to overstay the visa And the reason we came to the U.S. is because my dad's brother, my uncle, had become a U.S. citizen. Mm. He was married to um, an American woman, and he filed an immigrant visa for us. But the thing about having a relative who can sponsor you is that you still have to wait in line for your visa. Uh, and so it took about three years for us to get our wow. And so we were undocumented um, for the first uh, few years we were in the U.S. And Karen, and what, what year was that that you came? Sure. Mm -hmm. Good question. Yeah. yeah. It was 1981 is when we came. It was actually Thanksgiving Day, 1981. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we, what, um, what state did you come yes. to? Yes. So my uncle and my Aunt Judy lived in... Rhode Island. So that's where we mm. arrived and that's where our dad was. But we didn't stay there very long because as you know, Rhode Island is a tiny little state mm -hmm. and the immigrant community is tight. And because my parents were undocumented, they were really afraid. They heard of raids that were happening. So they were afraid. And so my mom's mom and my, uh, my mom's brother lived in Los Angeles. So we moved to Los Angeles right after the new year. And oh, okay. we lived there uh, because my parents thought this is a very safe place for us to wait because there's so many immigrants. It's such a big, big sprawling mm -hmm. urban center. And this is not a place where we could be easily found. And so that's why we moved there. And I remember right after the Olympics in 1984, we received our Um, call that our immigrant visa number had arrived. And so we flew to Guatemala to the U.S. Embassy to have our interview there. Mm. And, you know, now that I work in an organization that serves immigrants, I realize how uniquely blessed and fortunate we were mm -hmm. that we had a relative who could sponsor us because so many people don't have that. They don't have a solution because they don't have a relationship that's close enough uh, for sponsorship. And that line that we waited in was only three years, but now that same line is 13 years. <gasps> 13 years? Yes. And if you're from oh. Mexico, China, India, or the Philippines, which have the biggest groups of immigrants in the U.S., the line is 23 years. That, that, it, it, that's just not even fathomable. I mean, that's... <laughs> Right. That, that's crazy. Why? Yeah. Why is it so long? Well, well it's because yeah. Yeah, <laughs> our system is really outdated now. You know, when yeah. we came, our system was only about 15 years old, but now it's had some 40 years without any reform. Oh. Yeah. Susan, are you trying to say something? I can see your mouth moving, but we can't hear you. Nope. <laughs> Uh-oh. And I know she's got something yeah. pressing. She <laughs> wants to ask. Oh, boy. Katie, can you hear me? Yeah, I can, Gwen. Okay. Um, but I know that Susan is dying to ask about reform. But before we get into that, keep going with your story, because yeah. I don't want to interrupt. Sure. Jump ahead. So one thing that I... I really want people to know is how dramatically our life changed after we became mm -hmm. 
documented. I mean, people think that immigrants prefer to live in certain neighborhoods or to have certain kinds of jobs or to not own a home. Um, but the fact is, immigrants are people and we want the same things for our families that you want for your family. Mm. And so once my parents were documented, we actually moved out of California because there's no need to hide anymore. My parents, mm -hmm. instead of focusing their energy on hiding and remaining under the radar and trying not to call any attention to ourselves, they could now think about things like, oh, we can buy a home. We can mm. find better jobs. Right. We can now get music lessons in Little League and you know, these things that parents are able to think about uh, when they have the proper documentation to be in the country. And so, so we moved to Florida and I grew up in a suburb of Tampa and I lived there from the time I was about 12 and I went to college in Florida. So mm. yeah, our lives change so much. And you know, it's funny because as a kid, I didn't even know what happened because I was a child and yes. you know, didn't understand the intricacies of immigration law. But I did see that our life has, had changed uh, so dramatically and that to me, it just felt like, oh, my parents are just doing better, you know, <laughs> but talking to my dad, I know for a fact, he said, no, once we were documented, there were so many things we could do with our so lives. Many more opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, and being able to even think about like, there were things that they used to worry about, like, you know, there was a community center for example where we lived and he's and my dad used to worry that if we went there we could get picked up by immigration yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But once you're yeah. documented you can access things for the community mm -hmm. that are for everyone because you don't have mm -hmm. those kinds of fears those kind of fears mm -hmm. yeah. now this is just a quick and it might be very ignorant but I'm just curious when you lived in LA mm -hmm. you still could go to school and get health care and everything correct correct Correct. Well, we go to Good. school. <laughs> yes, uh, for sure. Because, and actually we did, we could go to, we went to like urgent care kind of clinics. Oh, uh, but yes. So there was a, a case that was decided long, long ago uh, that said that children of undocumented immigrants are allowed to go to school. Oh, so yes, God, we're in school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. And so yeah, that's a tr true even today. If your um, parents are undocumented and you are as well, you can still go to school. What about health care? Health care was different because my parents had jobs. You know, many immigrants do the work that nobody else wants to do, right? right. It's always been that way. I remember a couple of years ago being in New York and getting a tour of the Brooklyn Bridge and hearing about how recently arrived Irish immigrants had built the bridge and that many of them had died in the process, actually. Yeah. And it's always been the case that immigrants are the backbone of the working class, and they do the work that a lot of citizens don't want to do. So my parents did, too. I mean, my dad was an educated person, but he worked as a uh, doing custodial work at yeah. a hotel mm -hmm. because that's the kind of work he could get. And yeah. my mom had been a nurse in Guatemala, but in the U.S., she was a home health care worker. So neither, neither of them had the kinds of jobs that provided benefits. Yeah. And so oh. what they did if we oh. were, if any of us got sick, is they would take us to like a community health sure. center mm -hmm. yeah. to right. get care. Right. Yeah. Luckily, we were pretty healthy. And the one time we went to the hospital was, um, one of the little known things is that immigrants are more likely to become victims of crimes uh, because it's a vulnerable position to be in. Often they live in under-resourced neighborhoods. Often uh, we don't speak the language. We don't trust the police because in our country, the police was very corrupt. And so all of those factors contribute to making immigrants more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so my mom, actually every adult in my family was the victim of a crime, but my mom actually ended up going to the hospital because she was held up at gunpoint and pistol whipped um, by these men when she was returning home from work. And because they knocked her down, they called an ambulance. And my parents didn't know about the cost of healthcare in the U.S. 
and they ended up getting this $700 bill for five five stitches, you know, something crazy. And of course, you know, in 1982, $700 is a lot of money even now. But back then for people who are barely struggling to survive, it's, it was, it was a lot. Catastrophic. Absolutely. So they worked out. And Karen, I, can you guys hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Um, The, I, I want to just say one thing and then maybe get your input on it is I think some people, cause this is a very, um, this can be a volatile discussion sometimes with different people within the United States. Mm-hmm. And some of them that perhaps that are even listening to this story right now, mm-hmm. they are having to pause as soon as they heard that you guys came in here undocumented and they, and mm-hmm. you came in here without documentation. But what I would say is, um, you have incredibly brave parents that chose to leave a very dangerous situation of a civil war to come and protect their children. And I think any of us that have kids would stand and just want to hug your parents' necks because they protected you in a way that right now it's confusing for us that have been American citizens our entire lives. Mm -hmm. Because we have not walked one day in your shoes. And Mm -hmm. so anyone that is feeling like they're maybe twisting in their seat a little thinking, but wait a minute, they came here undocumented. What I would say is, praise God, you did. Because you now are here to tell a story about it. And your parents were so brave um, to even make that happen. And um, that is where I think so often that we are having these discussions about immigration reform Stories sometimes can't go to the next level because all they hear is someone came into the country undocumented. When, if you can get past that little hump, you would hear a gorgeous, gorgeous story of courage and bravery that has hard parts of it. Like your mom getting hit and having a fight and your parents having, your dad who is highly educated having to now be a custodian. But look at the bravery and courage that your family just displayed. And I believe your family makes us better as an America in the way that you guys are so brave and so courageous and so doing the right thing. And see, I don't even have a question in any of this. I just want to hug you so much through this computer screen. I'm sitting here rambling and rambling. And what I would say, what choice did your parents have? They had to make a decision to move forward. They had to for your safety, for your Mm -hmm. life, for to, to thrive. Karen, um, would you tell Katie and Susan the story you told me about uh, you were just playing outside with your friends and what you came upon? Yeah, so one of the things that happened is I like to for people to understand like how bad it was because sometimes you think, oh, there's a war going on, but maybe, you know, it's not touching people's daily lives. They just know about it and it's unsettling, but... Uh, we lived in the city and we lived in a, in a neighborhood and uh, that was fairly safe where we played with kids in, the, in our neighborhood. And one afternoon, my brother and I and some friends, we only wandered over probably a couple of blocks from our house. But, you know, we weren't supposed to leave our block, but kids push boundaries. And so we did as well. And so we were wandering um, around another street and we came upon a dead body. It was the body of a man who had been dumped there. And, you know, he had these marks all over his body. And I was about seven years old at the time. My brother was six. You know, probably the oldest kid among us was maybe nine. I mean, we were little, uh, elementary school age. And he had these just marks all over his body. And, you know, one of the kids said, I wonder what happened to him. And, you know, it was just this very unsettling thing. But of course, we were we were somewhere where we weren't supposed to be, a couple of blocks from our house. And so we didn't tell our parents that we had found it. And later I, I figured out all these marks on the body were probably signs of torture right. because most people who were disappeared were tortured and then they were murdered and then they were dumped. Um, all all over parts of the city. So we saw that. We heard our parents talking. We heard them talking about friends of theirs who had disappeared, Mm -hmm. friends friends who had been found murdered. So it was uh, was very traumatic 
because I think our parents thought we weren't aware of what was happening. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't tell them. We didn't want to get in trouble for being two blocks from the house. So we didn't tell them. <laughs> and of course, they wouldn't have cared if they had known. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we were just too afraid to tell them. But we were aware that there was a lot of things happening that weren't good, that things had changed from the way they were. It wasn't something that wasn't touching our lives in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Karen, tell us, um, why did you write The God Who Sees? What made you start, what made you write that book? Sure. So <laughs> interestingly enough, when I started working for World Relief, I worked in church engagement for this um, immigration legal office we have here in Baltimore. And I would go to churches and meet with pastors and talk about immigration and God's heart for immigrants. I would sometimes preach and give um, resources to the church communities and do Bible studies with them, uh, looking at this topic. And I started to realize after a while that all of the resources were written by people who deeply love immigrants and refugees, but who weren't immigrants themselves. That's right. And I knew a lot of immigrants uh, who were involved in advocacy work and were actively involved in, um, you know, speaking and even going to Capitol Hill to advocate at that level. But we weren't writing our stories. And I thought, you know, we have stories, too, that we can tell Mm. the story from a very personal level because we are living it. It's not uh, something that is adjacent to us, but it's happening actively. And so my sister and I actually went to see Hamilton in New York. And I thought it was so interesting how this story of the founding of America was being told from the perspective of an immigrant who was involved. I loved that too. In that very process. And you know, it really inspired me. I started praying about it and I would complain a lot about it. Like, why are why aren't we writing our own stories? And a friend of mine just said, why don't you write that book? Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you write that. yours. <laughs> you yes. writing yours. Yeah, write oh. your story. So, so that's kind of how that was born. And I mean, it was a lot more prayer and process than, yeah. than all of that. But, um, but yeah, it was, a, it was also, um, it was a very, it was very hard emotional work to write it because I wanted people one, to know our story, that we lived this and that it was this difficult. But I also wanted people to know that God isn't silent when it comes That's to right. uh, immigrants and immigration, that in fact, God spoke to that, that this isn't a new situation that's just come up in our world, that it was a, something that came up in the ancient world as well, and that there's a lot of story stories of migration in the scriptures, and we just need eyes to see that. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I would imagine <clears throat> we have a saying around our podcast that stories lend courage and they lend hope. And I would imagine um, other immigrants that have read your book, you have you have given them courage and hope to think, wait a minute, my story matters too, and it's important to share our stories. And I love that. I do. I love yeah. that so much. Um, okay, so here's our next our next question is actually threefold. So I'm going to okay. ask them all at once, and then you can dive <laughs> into what what you would like to answer first. Is there a time when the Christian's allegiance to God and allegiance to the state can intersect? So that's A. The next is what can be said to the person who defends the rule of law? And then this last one is a whopping big question, but truly, man, it needs to be answered so much, is why is there no immigration reform? So those are the three big questions all rolled up into one. Okay. So the first question had to do with, is there ever a time when uh, God's commands intersect, right, with the rule of law? And I would say yes. We saw that happen during the civil rights movement when there were many people who felt that there were laws that were laws Mm. of men but that were against God's laws. That's so mm. right. Yes. And that didn't recognize the dignity and the humanity mm-hmm. of other people. And so it's the same today. You know, there are many people that I know who are working to repeal Roe versus Wade because they see that even though it's a law in our country, they recognize that it's an unjust law because it harms 
image bearers of God. Yeah. And so, well, just as that law is unjust, we have other laws that are unjust as well. And immigration is one of these laws. And I think for Christians, people have to ask themselves if they will align with the empire or if they will align with God, Mm. because often God and the empire are not on the same side. That's right. Um, And so when a law harms people, when you see pictures of children in cages at the border, when you know that countries have been destabilized, sometimes by wars we have waged, sometimes by our own foreign policy, um, and people are fleeing with their children, mm-hmm. their spouses, their parents. I think it's important for us to say, what matters more here? Is it a law, a criminal misdemeanor that says you can't cross the border? Or is it the life of this image bearer of God? You so, know what? I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. That is a powerful, <laughs> powerful phrase right there. Yes, it is. Because... Um, <laughs> That golly, that um, that is a powerful phrase. That any time there is harm happening to an image bearer of our Most High God, there is a problem, mm-hmm. and then our le- allegiance can no longer be to what we think as an American it should be, but rather as a follower of Christ it should be. Mm-hmm. Because if there is harm coming to an image bearer of our Most High God, that is our problem to help deal with. Mm-hmm. Ah, Karen, I love you. I could just hug you through the screen. <laughs> All right, keep going, keep going. And uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is that you see that, for example, in the story of Abraham. You know, when we first meet Abraham in the Bible, it says that Abraham was asked by his God to migrate. And so yeah. he did. And then their famine came upon the land. So Abraham migrated again, and he went to Egypt to escape uh, the famine because Egypt was a place often where there was no famine because of the Nile River and its very fertile (laughs) deltas. What does Abraham do when he arrives in Egypt? He lies. He commits fraud. He says, she's my sister, (laughs) which is a very convenient uh, half-truth. And then he says you know, Sarah, do this for me. They will treat me, you know, badly if they know you're my wife. So I need you to go along with this. And she does. And then she is sent to the Pharaoh's palace. Meanwhile, Abraham grows wealthy and is treated well because of her. I mean, he essentially traffics her for his own well-being. Now, this is not his best moment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, as we've met him. <laughs> but it's also not his whole story. That's, amen, know. that's right. Right? He is more than this terrible thing that he did. And he did it because he was fearful. He did yes. it because he didn't know what else to do and honestly feared for his life. And God steps into that situation to rescue Sarah. But, you know, this is not something we love to talk about Abraham as the father of our faith. And we don't like to think about this incident because it really yes. contradicts everything else that we know about Abraham to be true. But this is also a part of a story. Yes. And the scriptures tell us this story. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't believe Abraham should have been, you know, should have been sidelined because of this situation that he put himself in I believe he was doing the best he could trying to survive and this is the same situation with many migrants they're doing the best they can for their families trying to survive and they're not out to break our laws they're just out to survive and I I like to challenge people to just consider if this were you if this were your children yes you know what would you do uh to survive and to yeah. ensure your, your children's well-being. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I'll tell you this, Karen, I think as, as a mom and as Katie and Gwen and I are all moms, there is no way in the world you can argue with that. There's mm-hmm. no way in the world, if you're looking in the eyes of your kids and you know their well-being, their survival is dependent upon you making a choice, you absolutely get that. You absolutely yeah. get yeah. where that is because your kids mean more to you 
honestly, their well-being and their livelihood means more to you than um, what am I supposed to be doing right here? I mean, it really, yeah. And um, let's say that your kids don't have food. Yes. What does a parent do to provide food? Yeah. You get them fed. You get them fed. Yeah. You know, what did Hagar do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She put her son Mm -hmm. under the bush so he wouldn't dehydrate. And she stayed outside, Mm -hmm. you know, and God rescued them. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's very true when you said people don't want to look that part of Abraham. They don't. They want to look at him as just the incredible man that we read about in the scriptures. But this part of his story is very real. It is is very real. Yes, it is very real. And it cannot be glossed over. And there's a reason that it was allowed into the sacred texts. And therefore, there's a reason that we need to lean in on that part of the scripture. And this is such, your story brings such good thoughts about, man, we are called to care for those who have been created in the image of God. And that is all men and all women. And um, Mm. we have to examine in our own hearts, how are we doing that? And, and as, as an American, as a white American woman, I have to examine in my own heart the, to not be judgmental when they're, when help is supposed to be provided. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. I'm rambling. Yeah, right. I'm totally rambling. And and I think stories, listening stories, hearing stories helps us individually put our own selves in that spot. Yeah. Like, like me, I was raised in a little town in Wisconsin. So kind of naive, but a huge Irish Catholic family. And I'll never forget when I was old enough and... You know, my great-grandma would share about her people immigrating from Ireland during the potato famine. They were desperate because they were hungry. Yeah. (laughs) But how they were so um, mistreated and Mm -hmm. how horrible it was. And I remember being so shocked. Yeah. Like... Really? And our our last name used to be O'Flaherty. They dropped the O <laughs> to try to blend in more. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I don't think dropping the O really helped all that much. <laughs> Katie. I mean, to go from O'Flaherty to Flaherty, I think they're still going to guess we're Irish, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I think even at a young age, even though I didn't live in L.A. and know um, it, no immigrant s- stories or it, it, meet immigrants or be able to have a heart in that way, hearing my own people's stories yes, right. mm-hmm. opened my heart and made me absolutely never, ever wanting to be judgy or... Uh, and, and to want to reach out and help. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so I yeah. love that you're sharing all this. Yeah. What, yeah. Was, what was that second question, Susan? I lost track of those three big questions <laughs> you asked. Well, I think you kind of answered the second one. My, the third one I'm curious about is why is there no Im- immigration reform? Mm-hmm. That is a yeah, huge question, yeah. Karen. Can, help us understand that. You know, part of it goes to some of what Katie was saying. Uh, she remembers her own family's immigrant past. Mm-hmm. She heard those stories. And that has given her compassion uh, for immigrants today. But that's unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not the case with most mm. people. Most people are actually more like Abraham and Sarah, who suffered terribly in Egypt, and then turn around to inflict that same suffering on another migrant in their household mm. when they left. Oh. And, you know, I was, um, you know, I, I am on, on Twitter and you know, all other social media. And I saw a very famous uh, journalist who had, uh, who was of Irish ancestry as well, and who posted a picture of himself. He visited Ireland, went to the village where his family originated and took a picture and said, you know, it's from this village that my family migrated legally to the United States, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and it was really, 
very interesting to me because he probably doesn't know that when his family migrated, the first federal law wasn't in place until like 1924. Uh, so, and it wasn't against Irish people. <laughs> so he doesn't even recognize that there were no immigration laws when his family migrated. Yeah. You know, yeah. the first immigration law was a Chinese exclusion act. Um, mm. And so what happened is that his family benefited from a very open door policy uh-huh. at the time. Wow. 98% of the people who came through Ellis Island were admitted to the U.S. There weren't even the resources to enforce the very limited statutes that were in place because there was such a great need. Sometimes they admitted 5,000 people a day. Yeah. Basically, if you didn't have a, a communicable disease uh, wow. and you were relatively healthy to work, they let you in. That was that was it. That was it. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think so many of us have forgotten have forgotten that many people in this country have an immigrant past. Yes. And 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 now what we have is a situation where our leaders Really every person. I know. <laughs> every for every single person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at the time when immigration when there was an open door, we had a big landmass to grow with people, you know, it's people and workers and uh, people who were brave enough to travel across the ocean or, or any, you know, anywhere they got here. Yeah. 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 And that kind of spirit is what grew America. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What's that? What's that engraving on the Statue of Liberty? Give me your your tired, you're tired, tired your poor, and your poor, your, your masses. masses. Yeah, yearning to breathe free, be free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's who was coming. People who were wealthy in Ireland weren't leaving Ireland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were okay. It was people who who were in a desperate situation. Desperate situation. So, yeah. what happened to that spirit then? Um, what happened to that open? Well, you know, I think what's happened is that our our leaders just simply have not had the will to really push through reform. 1965 is how old the law is. That's when it came into being. I don't know if you remember, but a lot of people think that being pro-immigration and pro-immigration justice is some kind of liberal agenda. But actually, I want people to remember that Ronald Reagan instituted an amnesty in 1986. Right. That's right. And actually, a lot of Republican presidents have tried to push through reform. In fact, they've done more than Democrats. And, and George W. Bush, because I believe he, because, because he's from a border state and mm-hmm. he understands you know, mm, some of yeah. this. And so whatever his other mm. faults are... He really did try hard. And he even has said recently one of his biggest regrets is that he could not push through mm-hmm. comprehensive immigration reform when he was uh, president. So Obama was one of the biggest deporters that we've had. He deported more immigrants um, than any other president in, in recent history. But somehow it gets immigration gets painted as this liberal thing, it really isn't. It, it really is for all of us because we have labor needs in our country. You know, a few years ago in Washington state, which is where we get a lot of apples, they tried to institute paying really high wages for people who picked apples yeah. in agriculture. And they didn't get enough workers and apples literally rotted on the trees Mm. because our citizens simply don't want to do this kind of work. Also, we have have an aging population and we don't have enough people to replace the workers. Um, And so it's really our needs that are being met by immigrants um, that are coming into our country. We seem to have these two signs at the border and one of them says, get out. But the other one says, help wanted, we have jobs. And the fact is the people who are hiring undocumented immigrants aren't being punished for it. Instead, we're punishing the migrant. And that seems to me to be a little unfair and unbalanced Mm -hmm. in the way that we're approaching that. So 
We need our leaders to have the will to push this forward. It has to be bipartisan. Right. And in order for that to happen, we have to put pressure on them. They have to know that people care and that this matters to the, their constituents. Yeah. And to push it through. You know, um, last Christmas I went to the Hill and I went to Lindsey Graham's office and Mitch O'Connell's office. And the first thing that the people said in Mitch O'Connell's office was, oh, are any of you from Kentucky? And none of us were. Mostly where we were from Maryland, North Carolina. It was, I was with a group of people. And they were like, oh, okay, well, welcome, you know. But they really want to hear from their constituents the in people Kentucky. that live in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And so people think their voice doesn't matter. But every time you call Congress, and I call frequently, I leave a message with an actual person, and it actually gets to them. Believe it or not, like those calls, those letters, right, those emails right. really matter because they know I'm a citizen. I live in their district here in Baltimore. Yeah. I live in their state if they're senators. And so we simply have to put pressure on our leaders so that they have the will to really make this happen. Well, and I think putting pressure on the leaders, it equates to us truly needing to have a deep sense of empathy. For people. Yes. And right. if we have lost our empathy, I feel like we've lost our humanity. Mm-hmm. And God has gifted, I say this often, God has gifted women with the gift of nurture. And uh, the most nurturing thing that we can do for other women is to have empathy for them and for their families. And for us to be able to call our people in our states, that is an act of empathy mm-hmm. to say, we care how people are being treated. We care, and we need you to care how people are being treated. Right. Mm -hmm. Because this isn't about documented versus undocumented. This Mm -hmm. is about how are we treating image bearers of the Most High God. Mm -hmm. And as women, we have the ability to make a change. Um, And that is using our voice of nurture by being empathetic to those that are experiencing this. Um, I tell you, I grew up, funny that you say apples, I grew up on an apple farm and, um, well, I didn't grow, live on the apple farm, but I grew up, my father's an apple farmer. See, that's not a detail you needed. And I just kept talking. talking. (laughs) Anyway, so my dad is an apple farmer and uh, we had migrant workers all the time that would come, especially during harvest season to pick our apples. And they would only come for half of the year. And then the other half of the year, they'd go back to South America. And Uh, My dad would, they would come to our home all the time and have dinner. We would have Christmas parties um, on the farm with them. And and then there would be a part of the year that they would not be there because they would go back and see their families. And they would, but they would be with us for like eight, nine months out of the year. And I would say, well, where, because a lot of times it was maybe just the men that were there. And I would say, because some of them did bring their whole families, but not a ton of them. And I would say, well, where are their families? And dad said, well, they worked here and then they send the money back to help care for their families. And that stirred in me empathy that I did not even know was necessary or existed in my life. Because the thought of their kids not seeing their dad for nine months out of the year, every single year, right. that, and I, I just remember saying, but don't they miss their kids? And my dad said to me, of course they miss their kids, but what they're doing is brave and courageous because they're caring for their family in this way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, on, that's right. I mean, that's right. We just, we need to look, instead of looking at it as if they are in, in, in what's the word, encroaching and crouching, anyway, as if they're breaking our laws, mm-hmm. we need to look at them as, look at the brave humans they are. Look at the brave souls that they are and how they, they made us better people when we were with all of our migrant workers, they made us better people. They made um, our business a better business. They made us better at what we were trying to do to make our living because they were working to make their living. Mm-hmm. I am rambling and I'm so sorry. I'm just. Well, this- I remember, Susan, when you shared a Christmas story yeah. on this uh, episode, I mean, on this uh, podcast yeah. last year. Yeah, about having Christmas parties with your migrant workers and how mm-hmm. that opened your young little mind. It totally did. To yeah. different foods and different cultures and mm-hmm. different language. And it, it grew you as a person. So 
I hear what you're saying there. Yeah. Totally hear. But yeah. I want to go back to this reform idea. And I just want to ask kind of a particular question here. Like you had said that in this day and age, people can wait 22, 23 years to, to get an official visa? What, I mean, can't that alone be reformed? Or wh- why is the wait so long? And what is so ridiculous about that? Well, because they only release so many visas per year. And so if you file a petition today, and let's say you are, let's say your relative, your brother is in Mexico and you file a petition today, he, there, is a, there is a line for some people he'd have to get in the back of that line. And because only so many immigrant visas are released by DHS every year, and that's a Department of Homeland Security, that means that the first people in line get those visas. And oh, there's only so many visas available in a year that they will give. So and this who is made what that up? That's who, that's the department it? of that's the department of homeland security and they are so the they set a number and that's it right but then this is the reason Katie if I'm understanding correctly Karen correct me if I'm wrong this is the reason that we need to have our voice heard within right. um, our representatives because mm-hmm. we need to say we need reform this 22 year waiting period is not acceptable it's ridiculous but when you have a family that is in crisis. As a mom, I want to help that other mom. Mm-hmm. I want to help her family not be in crisis anymore. And so I think this is the reason instead of saying, how do we get reform? I think we let our voices be heard to our, to our representatives to say, reform is, it is not any, it's no longer a discussion. It has mm-hmm. to happen. It has to yeah. happen. Yeah. Because yeah. If, if people are barking about undocumented, but it takes 20 years, 22 years to get documented? Yeah. I mean, that's just outrageous. That's ridiculous. Right. Quit barking and change the rules here. Yeah, for sure. Right? For sure. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Karen, I want to switch gears here for a second um, on this, this next question is fascinating to me, is that 60 to 70% of immigrant women experience sexual violence on their journey to America. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you these questions. Who are the victims? Who are the offenders? And what can we do? Sure. So this is, I think, the greatest humanitarian crisis at the border. It is the vulnerability of immigrant women. And so, you know, many women are coming from Central America. And so they're making this journey. It's a lot of people who are very poor. So they're making this journey on train, by foot, by car, all the way from Central America through Mexico. So sometimes they're vulnerable to other migrants. Sometimes they're vulnerable to officials. Sometimes it's just bandits, criminals who actually mm-hmm. prey on other um, on people who they know are in vulnerable situations. Oftentimes it's the human smuggler. Mm. You know, working yeah. in the uh, immigration yeah. legal office, I remember a situation of a brother and sister who came, and the human smuggler told the brother, "If I, if you don't." let me sleep with your sister. I'll just leave both of you here in the desert. Oh, geez. Which is essentially a death sentence, you know? Yes. Just leave you here to die. And so the human smuggler, because, you know, it's a criminal activity. They know they can do whatever they want. Uh, And so that's a situation that happens as well. So there's, yeah, it's, it's a very terrible situation, but because all of it is, if there were a process for example, for getting, getting to the border and being able to apply for a work visa from Guatemala, from El Salvador, from Honduras, without going through this very perilous and dangerous journey, it would save so many lives. So it's such a crisis that there are actually groups at the border that distribute birth control. Even Catholic groups do this because at least they don't want women to become pregnant from the rapes. Uh. Yeah. So the oh. it's it's such a terrible it's such a terrible problem that when I worked at the clinic, I remember thinking one day that I never thought working in an immigration legal office I would on a daily basis meet women who had been victims of sexual assault, mm-hmm. and yet it happened every day. Well, that's and a huge percentage, sixty to seventy percent. That is a say, massive percentage. That's like one in two. 
That's yeah. crazy. Okay, so tell me what, truly, what, what can we do? How are we able to help this crisis? I mean, it's a very difficult thing because people are still making this journey. But I think in terms of what we can do, again, we can push our own government to make different laws to to really have reform here. We can also give to organizations that are working to serve women because there are, you know, shelters all throughout. I think one of the most heartening things that I experienced was I, I took a, a trip to the California-Mexico border with an organization called Matthew 25. And we went to different shelters that are run by Mexican churches. Oh, one was run by a Catholic stop church. Stop it. Yeah. And they're really doing, I mean, I was so heartened to see God's global church at work yes. and, and yes. responding because we all, all we hear is tragedy, right, wow. from, from this side. But when I went there, I saw shelters that were so dignifying where they really were seeking to help people, to help them integrate and stay in Mexico if possible. Mm. You know, there were people from Haiti. There was a little Haiti that this church had built with the migrants, a little Haiti village, because, uh-huh. you know, their their temporary protected status was canceled, and so they had nowhere to go now if they couldn't enter the United States. So, so these are on the border. These are, these are ones that are on the border. And yeah. are they, they're helping... Um, migrants, period, or they're helping those that have been um, se- experienced sexual violence? Or is they're it They're helping all migrants, period. Wow. But having access to a safe place yes. is yes. extremely helpful because a lot of migrants don't have, you know, if you're just sleeping in the street, I mean, the rate of sexual violence for homeless people is extremely high, right? Of you have course. no protection, uh, no safe place to lay your head. And this is what a lot of these shelters are providing. So I think being able to give to organizations that are actively working at the border, there's now been something that I find very disheartening is all these people traveling to the border. Truthfully, unless you're an attorney and you can provide legal service, unless you're opening a shelter, there's nothing for you to do there. Better to save your money and give it to an organization that is serving people yeah, and that yeah. can actually make a difference, can actually save a woman from such a, a terrible ordeal uh, rather than uh, just going there your yourself. Money to go there. Yeah. yeah, because no, there's just arriving like, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I, what can you really do? Plan. That is right. really a... Um, but are you saying these shelters are on the Mexico side of the border? Yes, they're on both you, sides, actually. Oh, but you did uh, find some on, on uh, the United States. I didn't go to the U.S. side, but on the Mexico side, there was a lot. That's all that I visited. And it was all a push by the Mexican churches. And there were Methodist I'll tell you pastors, this. evangelical pastors, Catholic priests. I Can I tell that. you what this makes me want to do? Because mm-hmm. we believe, we believe stories change lives. That's the entire mission of this podcast because it changes people's thought process. It produces empathy in people when you hear other people's stories. It makes me want to go there and tell their stories and mm-hmm. to record their stories so That's other right. people can hear their stories. Because mm-hmm. when, I mean, Karen, even hearing your story, it produces more empathy in me mm-hmm. for not only your family, but for the good work you are doing now as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I just want to load us up and go there and tell their stories and hear their stories so that other people can hear there. It is beyond what is law and what is not law. There is a story behind the decision that is being made by those families. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just well. This oh is what I would say, Karen. You come across stories every day in your work. You ever hear any that we could interview on this podcast? <laughs> you let us know. Or <laughs> if you were going to shelters and you did need help to come along, let us know that too. Mm-hmm. Susan, I know you. You wanted to get on plane <laughs> do. go right down there. Well, girl. because I, I just I believe in plan. the plan. But I believe in the value of storytelling. And I think empathy can happen. Well, I just think empathy happens when you hear the journey of another person. Right. Right. And, um, but the people are coming, um, you know, in Texas and California, 
they're, they're not coming without a plan. <laughs> they're coming with hopes of asylum. Yes. 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 And yes. it's being denied. Yes. Yes. All right. Now talk about that, Karen. Talk about yeah. that a little bit. So the people that are coming right now, they're not coming to cross the border as undocumented people. They are coming to do something that our laws allow for, which yes. is apply for asylum. So actually, they come over and they turn themselves into immigration or border officials. And they want to apply for asylum, but our current administration... So I want you to know that before this administration took office... About 10% of asylum applications were successful. 10%. That's not very many. Because it's, a, and it's an incredibly difficult thing to prove. You have to prove that you have a credible fear of persecution on account of only five specific things. So your political opinion, um, your um, race, your ethnicity your membership in a particular social group, meaning, for example, if you're an educated Muslim woman, that's a social group. If you are uh, a relative of a political leader, that's a social group. And the other one is, is being persecuted for your religion. So you have, those are the only five things. So coming to the border and saying, I want to apply for asylum because my family's hungry. That's not, you can't apply for asylum based on that. It can only be based on persecution for those five categories. Oh, I didn't then, know that. And then once you apply, it's very difficult to prove because now you have to have proof that you were persecuted. Oh. So that how many people save proof of, you know, violence against them? Yeah terrible things they suffered. And so this is one of the reasons. Also, for a successful asylum case, you really need an attorney. The case takes about two years to adjudicate. You really need a good attorney to help you with the case. And most people don't have access to that either. I was just going to say, if you're broke, mm -hmm. the last thing you can do is go hire a really good attorney, <coughs> right? Don't they cost a fortune? Yes. And Karen, where would the people be while this is being brought to you know court where would they be allowed to live so in the past what happened is if you wanted to apply you would have to pass that credible fear interview and if you passed it then you could apply for asylum and then <coughs> excuse me sorry about that and you were paroled into the u.s and you could go stay with your relatives and wait for your case to be adjudicated. And so typically that took two years. So that was the, the past um, situation. But under the Trump administration, they've changed that. And now you're not paroled in. <clears throat> you have to go stay in Mexico. And of course that puts people in tremendous vulnerable situations. Mm -hmm. Because if you're being persecuted, you can't go back there and wait two more years. That doesn't exactly. even make sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, it, yeah. it is kind of complicated and layered and, and messy, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So imagine trying to navigate a system like this and you don't speak English and you don't have a lot of education. Or money. And like you yeah. said, if you don't have a relative or a sponsor. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. Well, Karen, tell me this. We ask every guest on um, that comes on, we ask them, what is one thing that you want us to remember from your story? Um, because there, in your story, there's a lot of action steps we could be taking, which is exciting because we don't have to just hear the story and then sit idle. Um, so that is exciting. But what is, if you could think of the one thing that you would want us to remember, tell us what that would be. I want people to remember that immigrants are not sitting in their countries thinking about the American dream, thinking about migration. Most people are pushed out by the sheer need to feed their families or to protect their families from violence or conflict. That's right. That's right. Well, then here's what I would encourage. I would, she gave us some action steps that we can take today. 
And that is, we need to really be in touch with our representatives and encourage uh, immigration reform. And that is the one, the one thing that we can do. The next thing that I would say is that I think our understanding of immigration reform changes when we are in relationship with immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I think there are ways within every community for that to happen. And there are so many avenues within um, even your local Department of Social Services where this is the perfect time of year for that. Because when you call those places and say, I want to sponsor a refugee family or sponsor, you know, a family that you have for Christmas. I want to provide them a meal or provide them presents for their children. They are going to jump on the chance of that. And then that forces a relationship to be born. Because when we are in relationship with people, less judgment happens and more empathy. And so I think those are two action steps. And we rarely give action steps on this podcast, but this (laughs) story, you cannot hear it and not be moved to action. And you need to either, well, both call your representatives and then be in relationship with a a family that is from another country that came here um, as an immigrant and be in relationship with them, get to know them. Your heart will be moved by it and your thought process on being empathetic to others will also be moved. I am rambling so much, but I'm just so moved. Well, and I tell you, the first thing I'm going to do seriously is order your book. I confess at the very beginning of this that I have not read it yet, but I'm going (laughs) to get it. I'm going to read it. And I'm (laughs) guessing you might have some resources in in your book maybe, or um, some calls to action. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. That yes. I could ponder and pray about and see which ones I specifically could take. Because Absolutely. That, mm-hmm. that is the greatness of America. We are a democracy and we are to be um, using our voice for reform and to change laws and to, you know, um, do we do it? Are we good citizens are we doing it and it really isn't as hard as we think it is Mm -hmm. to uh to contact our leaders yeah but that's a that's good (laughs) yeah well and just a reminder is that karen's book is called the god who sees and you can go right now on amazon and you can scoop that up and you guys are going to have christmas break soon so there's a good read for you to be able to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Lots of Absolutely. time to read while you're I know. And also, it would be good stocking stuffers for people. Mm-hmm. So grab the book, put it there in people's stockings, go. and it will, I'm just, I'm, I'm praying that the fruit of this story will have ripple effects to all of the people that are listening to it because it is that important. It is that important that we care wisely for image bearers of God. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Agree. Karen, thank you for being with us. You thank are you. sensational. We are so grateful that you chose mm, to be with us today. You are so well spoken and so knowledgeable. <laughs> I know. You're and doing such good work. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> it was great, great to be here. Great combination and very obvious. God is using you in this world and That's in right. this country to make a difference. So, That's right. Thanks, darling. It was a privilege to, uh, mm-hmm. to chat with you. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, I want to just do two things of housekeeping before we go, if that's okay. okay. Mm-hmm. One is um, we are, oh, one is some people have been asking how you share podcasts um, when we do it. If you guys um, go to any of your podcast platforms, there's actually ways if you click these little dots that are next to each episode yes. that you're able to share podcasts for um, all the episodes. You can text them to your friends. You can share them on um, social media. You can share them however you want to. So we're encouraging you to take this podcast and to share it with those. And then also starting January 5th, I think I'm right. January 5th is our book club for January. And it's going to be uh, Jess Connolly's book, You Are the Girl for the Job. And so that is another book that we would encourage you to buy, use it for stocking stuffers and all that fun stuff. And then we will be um, the Wednesdays in January and that first Wednesday of February, we will be having every Wednesday night on Instagram TV, IGTV, um, our book club 
And so we'll have more information about that on the socials. Um, but you guys are knowing about it now. So also tell your friends about that. We would love for you to have um, come and hang out with us. It's going to be me and Gwen and Katie and Portia. And so we're going to have, I know, it's going to be so fun. <laughs> we're going to have Portia uh, piped in from Minneapolis, on a little square on the screen. So it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all right, listeners, we love you guys. And thanks mm-hmm. for joining us today. Love you lots. Bye. Bye. Bye.